Thank you so much uh, to my dear cousin, Rabbi Dr. Johnny Hellman. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Molly Resnick for her arranging this beautiful evening for us. Uh, on behalf of the senior social clubs of KAJ, I would also like to dedicate uh, this evening's shir to Rabbi Edwin Katzenstein, Zechreinu Levracho, who actually was the um, go-between uh, a few years ago when I first addressed this the same august uh, group. Uh, I met him at the Aguda convention where I was uh, privileged to speak, and he came over to me afterwards and sub subsequently invited me uh, together with uh, Molly Resnick to uh, address on a Matzai Shabbos when we were actually able to do things uh, in person. Remember those days? Uh, and, we, uh, and, and he was always gracious, and he introduced me uh, in such a fine way. And then, um, tragically, a few weeks later, he was nifter to our great shock and, uh, and sadness. And so I'd like to dedicate this evening's shir to him. He was, of course, the, uh, such a, uh, a pillar. And, uh, he was such a pillar of the, um, of the Chaber Kadisha in Washington Heights. And so this, uh, this shir is actually very, very... Um, in line with his, with one of his many legacies, uh, and that's Kivrei uh, Tzadikim and Kfura Sameis. As uh, as my distinguished cousin uh, just mentioned, this is uh, a book that is uh, part of a series of books. Uh, many years ago, around ten years ago, I approached um, Rabbi Zlatowitz, an art scroll, Zechariah Levracha. If you'd be interested in publishing a sefer on the letters of G'dayli Yisrael, there are many, many letters uh, that are both inspirational, touching, historic, and uh, and I wanted to put it out in a way that would be very uh, beautiful with the actual uh, letters themselves. Whenever I was able to get them uh, to have a copy of the original letter, uh, beautiful portraits of the G'daylem photographs of the G'daylem, and other things to enhance the volume, to make the history come out. And uh, Rabbi Zlatowicz was very interested in the project, and so around 10 years ago, the first volume came out. I'm going to show things on my screen. I hope you could see it. Uh, this was the, uh, the first volume. It's called Great Jewish Letters, and Baruch Hashem, it was uh, well-received to the degree that we continued on this journey together, uh, Arts Girl and myself, and we went on to publish a book called Great Jewish Speeches, uh, which is uh, the speeches of G'day Yisrael. Um, then we went on to artifacts called Great Jewish Treasures, and then we proceeded to, uh, we had Great Jewish Wisdom, which are quotes of G'day uh Great Jewish Photographs, Great Jewish Classics, and the list goes on and on. In any event, um, after I had produced a book called Great Jewish Treasures, which was the artifacts of G'day Yisrael, uh, somebody came to me, a very uh, well-known scholar, and he said to me that, you know, you missed a lot of the artifacts of G'day And I said, really, which ones are you referring to? You know, which uh, particular artifacts are you talking about? He said that all across the world... There are kivrei tzaddikim, there are graves of tzaddikim that are still around, the ones that the Nazis were not, uh, did not get to, uh, in cities across the globe, from Eretz Yisrael to the rest of the Middle East, 
to uh, Europe, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, America. And then there are many shuls and, and yeshivas that still exist, the original buildings. All these landmarks and all these Kivrit Sadikim are, 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 in a sense, they're artifacts that are still around and they deserve a book of their own. So I approached uh, Rabbi Zlatowicz's son. Rabbi Zlatowicz was, of course, Nifter several years ago. His son, Rabbi Gedalia, is a good friend of mine, and uh, I asked him if he'd be interested in publishing a book on this topic, and he was very excited about it. And so, as my cousin said, this Hanukkah, we were Zeichet to put out uh, the latest book in the series called Great Jewish Journeys. It's called, actually, Great Jewish Journeys to the Past, and this is what the book looks like. The, when I was uh, in high school as a young man, I, uh, I went on a trip with my father, Zechrein Levracha. I think many of you uh, know him, knew him. Um, his name was uh, Rabbi Bjorn Bamberger, Rabbi Tzvi Halevi Bamberger. Uh, he lived in Washington Heights for many years before he moved out to Long Beach with uh, my mother, Zolgazanzain. Uh, I think she's on the Zoom as well. I'd like to give her a shout out. So we went uh, touring throughout uh, throughout Western Europe, and we landed in uh, in Frankfurt, and we went to the Kibre Tzadikim there, and we're going to discuss the cemeteries there. And then we went, of course, to Würzburg, which is where my great-great-grandfather uh, was the Rav, the Würzburger Rav, Rabbi Yitzchak Dov Halevi Bamberger, his son, Rabbi Nassan Halevi Bamberger, was his successor. And we went to a lot of the Kivrei Tzadikim throughout Germany. And then we went on to other places in Europe, but that was a, a major highlight of our trip. So in answer to Johnny's uh, question about whether or not I actually visited all of the Kivrei Tzadikim, the answer is no, I did not. I, I did visit many of them, but I cannot say that I visited all of them. But I was still able to do research on them. And the point of the book is to, like, to be a travelogue, that when you are going, or even if you're not going anywhere, like we're not going anywhere in these days of COVID, but still you could sit in your chair and enjoy uh, a tour, a virtual tour, but a tour of all the Kivrit Sadikim around the world, not obviously all of them, but the major ones get a little bit of a flavor for who the Gadol was, and then a little bit of a takeaway about his life or her life and, and, and her, his or her passing, uh, a vart that they may have said about life and death or something on the Matseva, something on the epitaph, uh, that on the on the gravestone that caught my attention and that was worthy of uh, of of delving into, and so we were able to uh, Baruch Hashem go through all of the uh, the major cemeteries throughout the world, the major Jewish cemeteries in Eretz Yisrael, in in uh, of course in uh, Yerushalayim. There's two major cemeteries, Harazesim and Haramanuchas, and then in Bnei Brak, and then we went to graves in Morocco. And in Egypt, we proceeded to Eastern Europe, where we visited um, virtually the uh, Kvarim of the great Lithuanian Rosh Yeshivas and Gedalim. And then we went to, uh, the, to the Eastern Europe uh, countries of, uh, of Poland and, uh, and where the Hasidim were based out of. And we, uh, we visited many of those uh, Kivrei Tzadikim. 
But for the purposes of tonight's lecture, tonight's shir, we are going to be discussing, focusing on the Kivrei Tzadikim, those special cemeteries that are of the Gedele Ashkenaz, the great Torah leaders, the luminaries of Germany. And so we're going to give a, an overview at first of the major cemeteries in Germany that still exist today, who's buried there. And then we're going to focus on four G'daylem, each individually bringing out certain points. A lot of the points are found in the book, but many of them are not. And with that, we're going to hopefully round out a nice uh, uh, shear uh, to give us a takeaway from all the lives of these special G'daylem that we were zeicha to have in our, in our Misera, in our tradition of, of Ashkenaz. So the major uh, cemeteries throughout Germany is there's a cemetery in Mainz. Mainz has, uh, was one of the oldest Jew- German uh, Jewish communities. Uh, it had a very, very uh, uh, difficult history with the Crusades and a lot of the, uh, the kinnis uh, surround the city of Mainz because there were terrible uh, attacks against the Jews there constantly. Rabbeinu Gershom Ar is buried in the city of Mainz, in the cemetery in Mainz, one of the early, early Rishonim that we have. Um, and his, uh, his name, I just want to touch upon for a second. He, was, he lived from 960 to 1040, and he, was a, uh, he, he settled eventually in the city of Mainz, where he established a major yeshiva, a major Torah center. And he attracted students to his yeshiva from all across Europe, including Rabbi Eliezer ben Yitzchak HaGadol and Rabbi Yaakov ben Yakar, who is the Rebbe of Rashi. So we have a, a little bit of an idea of how great Rabbi Gershom was. He was like the, the Rebbe of the Rebbe of Rashi. So, and Rashi writes in a responsa that we live by the words of Rabbi Gershom, who was the Ma'ar HaGayla. He was the light of the exile. And that's a little bit of a strange title to give somebody. Rashi was the one that gave it to him. Perhaps it was not just Rashi that gave it to him. Maybe there were a lot of people uh, throughout the world that would refer to him as Rabbeinu Gershom Ar Hagayla. And it's, it's a curiosity as to why he of all Gedalim would be called the light of the exile. And there's a, a great um, shot that I saw once and I brought in the book. It's by the Ostrov Tzarebbe who was a very well-known Rebbe who lived in the, in the early 1900s, mid-1900s in, in Eretz Yisrael. And he says the following uh, beautiful idea. He says that when Rabbi Gershom enacted many uh, famous Gezeris, we have, a, we have a lot of Gezeris that we're familiar with, like Chaim uh, Rabbi Gershom about opening people's mail. That's a famous one. Another one that we have, another two Gezeris that, that Rabbeinu Gershom enacted in his time, two decrees. Number one is that you cannot divorce a wife against her will. Even though from a Torah perspective, a person will be allowed to divorce his wife even if she refuses, but he, you have to have her consent in order, to, in order to fulfill the, uh, the get. That's, that was one institute, institution that he, um, that, he, that he made in one of his, uh, in one of his decrees. And another, 
another major uh, thing that he that he enacted was that you can't have two wives. A person is not allowed to have two wives. So before Rav Gershom came around, and people would marry more than one wife. We know that uh, polygamy in the Torah is, is perfectly fine. In fact, the Svardim who did not have Rabbeinu Gershom enact this, they, they theoretically could still have more than one wife. But Rabbeinu Gershom came and he says, no, you can only have one wife. So the Ostrovser says such a beautiful pshat. He says that we're in Gullus. The Jewish people are in Gullus for close to 2,000 years now. And We've done a lot of uh, a lot of things that were wrong. We we have done a lot of sins in order to get us to where we are. That's why we deserve to be in Gaulus, unfortunately. So there were two options that Hashem could theoretically have Rahman al uh taken to himself if he really would have wanted to. And number one is he could have taken a different nation. If we were sinning, so theoretically he could have chosen a different nation as his chosen people. And another thing that he may have done is that he could have also, he could have taken, uh, he, he also could have, uh, he could divorce us. He would be able to theoretically go against us and, and get rid of us as his nation. Those are two options that the Rabbi Shalom had in this Gaulus. Because Rabbeinu Gershom Maragola came along and said these two gezeris, number one, that you can't divorce somebody against their will, and also that you can't take a second wife, so that sort of stopped Hashem, as it were, from, from exercising either of these options. He was not able to take another nation, nor was he able to get rid of us as his nation, and so Rabbeinu Gershom was called Rabbeinu Gershom Ma'ar HaGaila. He was the light of the exile because, because of his decrees, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so to speak, has to stay with us as his nation. That's one uh, a major cemetery in the city of Mines. If we would go to the city of Worms, Worms is the city of Rashi, of course, there is a cemetery called the Heilige Sand, which means the holy soil, the holy ground, and there was buried the Maram Rottenberg. The Maram Rottenberg was, uh, again, one of the great Balitaisis, one of the great leaders of German Jewry. Uh, he studied in his youth in yeshivas in Würzburg and in Mainz. And then he went to study by Rabbi Yechiel of Paris, of Paris. Um, Rabbi Meir himself, the Maram Rottenberg, witnessed in 1244 the famous uh, public burnings of 24 wagon loads of Gemaras. And because of that, what he witnessed, he arranged the famous kinna that we say on Tisha B'Av called Shali Sarufa Ba'esh. And that's something that we have as one of his many legacies. He wrote many tshuvas. When he was uh, taken captive in a, in a jail, uh, the reason why he was jailed was because he was en route to Eretz Yisrael, but the authorities said that his immigration was illegal, and they threw him in jail for many, many years. He eventually died in jail, and um, he was a rebbe of the uh, uh, and and uh, a rebbe and his and uh, and his son-in-law was he was a rebbe of the rush, and the rush was also his son-in-law, and he wrote many tshuvas to the rush. Uh, in, in jail, which is an amazing thing. He didn't have any svarim, but yet he was able to uh, write many tshuvas to the rush. 
in the end, uh, the Maharam, even though uh, they offered to ransom him, he refused to be ransomed. And uh, rather than, uh, because he was afraid that that would set a bad precedent, that if he would be ransomed for a lot of money, then the Gayim would take other rabbis and it would never end. So he refused and he died in jail. Ultimately, um, there was a, a Jew by the name of Rabbi Alexander Ziskind Wimfen, who was a wealthy Jew, and he redeemed the body. He, he bought the rights to get the body out of jail, and he had it buried in the Halegasan Cemetery. And eventually, when he died, this Rabbi Alexander Wimfen, he was buried right next to the the Maram of Rottenburg, and the until this day, the two cemetery, the two graves lie side by side. The Maril is also uh, buried in the Halegasan Cemetery. The Maril was one of the uh, great halachic authorities of German Jewry. He custom he codified the customs of German Jewry in the Maril's Minhagim. We learn a lot. A lot of our Masera comes from the Maril. A lot of the uh, he was a Chazan as well, and so he was very. Uh, meticulous about the uh, the Masera that he had for the Tfilas and the Pizmanim and all the things that German Jews hold so near and dear, a lot of this comes from the Maril. And he's buried in that cemetery as well. Um, he writes the Maril in his Sefer Menhagim that the reason why Jews go to Kivrei Tzadikim, go to cemeteries to bury by Tzadikim's grave is because it's considered to be a holy and pure place. And in a holy and pure place, he says, that's when prayers are much more accepted. HaKadosh Baruch Hu accepts prayers that are said on holy soil, and these places of tzaddikim are, are the greatest holy soil that we have. He cautions us, though, that when you go to Davin by a kever of a tzaddik, and this is something that's very important for us to remember, that a person is not supposed to direct his tfilos, his prayers, to the actual tzaddik uh, himself or herself, if you're davening by a tzaddikus' grave. A lot of people think you're, you're praying to the actual soul of the dead person, but that's, of course, that's against our religion. We don't believe in that. What we're doing when we're going to the grave of the tzaddik is that we're davening to Hashem, that in the merit of this particular tzaddik, Hashem should have mercy upon us. And this is something that the Maril felt it very important to stress because people were under the, uh, the wrong assumption that you're going to pray towards the tzaddikim themselves, but that, that is something that is completely unacceptable uh, in our religion. The graves in Frankfurt, the cemeteries in Frankfurt, uh, there are two major cemeteries in the city of Frankfurt. One of the cemeteries in Frankfurt is a very, very old cemetery. It's, it's on the street called Battenstrasse, which is, uh, that's the strip of, uh, that's the street that uh, runs through, runs past this cemetery, so it was named after uh, the street that runs by it. In the book, by the way, I put many maps uh, I had a cartographer develop many maps. If you could see, um, this is actually a map of this cemetery on uh, Battenstrasse. And it's interesting because if you go to the actual cemetery, so there are graves of very famous tzaddikim, such as the Pnei Yeshua, the Hafla, and other great Gedalim. And you see the graves and you think, okay, this is where they must be buried. But the truth is that the Nazis knocked down 
all of the graves in the cemetery and all of the gravestones that were uh, important to, uh, to us after the war, we were able to find and then set up in a certain section of the cemetery, but it's not the actual place of, the, of where these tzaddikim are buried. So in, this, in, in my book, I put a map based on the recollections of Rabbi Zev Lang. Rabbi Zev Lang lived in Eretz Yisrael, and he was a member of the Hever Kadisha of Frankfurt before the war. So he had a, a recollection of exactly where those Sadiqim were actually buried, the Pnei Yeshua and the Hafla and, and Nassan Adler and all the great Sadiqim buried in the cemetery. Where were they buried? So I actually put in the book the actual true place that they're, that they're buried, even though today you don't find graves there, but you have a, an exact location where you could daven uh, if you want to daven by the graves of these great Sadiqim. There is one grave in this cemetery that we do have a Messiah that it's still in the exact same place that it always was, and that is the grave of the mother of the Chassam Seifer. The great Chassam Seifer, who we all live in his chus, he was, uh, he was born in Frankfurt. In fact, whenever he would sign his letters, he would always sign it, Moshe Seifer from Frankfurt am Main, even though that he later on went to be the Rav, of course, in Preshburg, but he always considered himself a Yelid Frankfurt, and so, and he was, of course, a Talmud of Reb Nassan Adler, who was buried in the cemetery. His mother was buried in the cemetery, um, and, and many, many people go and daven by her kever, because she promised before she died that whoever comes really from her family, but it was taken more loosely to extend to everyone, if you want to daven, if you need a Yeshua of some sort, you need some sort of salvation, her burial place is known to be a, a, a place that Yeshua's are found. And when I was there with my father, it was just a mound of, of rocks. You didn't really, and, and you know, people knew that it was the Chassam Sefer's mother's grave, but there was no gravestone. Today, they actually put up a very beautiful, like a red stone tomb, if you could see it. That's her, that's her grave. And her name was Razel Sefer. And she was, her, her son, the Chassam Seifer, said that he has no doubt that his mother were her, if she would have lived during the time of the, uh, the prophets, that she would be on the madrega of a Nevi'ah. She would be considered to be a female prophet if she would be alive then. And he said that nothing that Hashem does in this world when she was alive, he did without first consulting her. That's an amazing statement that the Chassam Sefer made about his mother. Um, and there's much to talk about, uh, about Rebetz and Rezal Sefer, but we're going to go weiter. There's the Pnei Yeshua, of course, uh, is buried in this cemetery, as well as the Hafla, Reb Nassan Adler, the great Rebbe of the Chassam Sefer, and the great Rebbe of Reb Avram Bing, who we're going to talk about a little bit later. Uh, he was uh, a tremendous uh, uh, force in German Jewry, he, he developed tremendous Talmidim, and he, uh, he was a Kayin, of course, and he, uh, fascinating story of Nassan Adler, how he took the Chassam Sefer as a young child under his wing, and, and really he made him into who he became. Uh, he took the Chassam Sefer away from his family's home, and he raised him, he adopted him as his own, and, and the Chassam Sefer always attributed everything that he had to his great Rebbe, of Nassan Adler, who's buried in this cemetery as well. Another cemetery in Frankfurt, in the same city of Frankfurt, 
is called the Rathbellstrasse Cemetery. And if I'm mispronouncing the German, uh, you'll all forgive me. I'm not, I'm not as fluent in the way to pronounce things as I'm sure uh, many of you are, so you'll please uh, bear with me. Um, this is also a, uh, a fascinating cemetery. There is uh, the different parts to the cemetery. There is an older part to the cemetery where the original, after they ran out of space, at the Battenstrasse Cemetery, they started burying people at the Rappelstrasse Cemetery. If you look on the on part of the cemetery to the to the left side of the cemetery, when you enter the gate, you would find very ornate uh, kvarim, beautiful graves that were from members of the Rothschild family the very affluent Rothschild family who their empire really began in Frankfurt and then it stretched to all across uh, Europe uh, in the major cities. They created banks and they became fabulously wealthy, but the, it was really rooted in Frankfurt and their graves are absolutely beautiful. It's something that if you would pay a visit to the cemetery, it's worthwhile visiting there. There is also other famous people buried in the cemetery, like the famous uh, German artist, Moritz Oppenheim, who is uh, many of the famous, beautiful um, paintings that we have of life in Germany, on Shabbos, on Yantif, on, on different occasions, Bar Mitzvah. We're all familiar, I think, with his works, even if we might not know that he's the artist of it, but I'm sure many of you have seen the works of Moritz Oppenheimer. He's buried in this cemetery. But what's very interesting is that the Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch, Zechitzadik Levracha, he, from 1886, he made a separate burial field within this cemetery. And there's a wall that separates his kehila from everyone else around him. And in this cemetery, in this part of the cemetery, is where Rav Hirsch would ultimately be buried when he was Nifter in 1888. Um, his son, uh, Rav Shlema Breuer, who was his successor, is buried there as well. And the Inuka of Stalin, a lot of Hasidim will go, you'll find Hasidim in the cemetery for some strange reason, because the Inuka of Stalin, which was, who was the Hasidish Rebbe of the great Stalin of Hasidim, he was in Germany for medical purposes, and he happened to die in Germany. While he was in Germany, he was Nifter, and he left in his, in his will that wherever, he's, wherever he dies, that's where he wants to be buried. So he's actually buried in a in a kever, which is sort of cordoned off by a uh, a metal sort of low fence, and many many Hasidim come to visit Bisrael Perlau of Stalin, who is the Rebbe that's buried in Frankfurt. I wanted to discuss. Let's just finish up with the other kivrei tzaddikim. There is a, a an amazing kever of uh, Beisaylam in in Hamburg, Hamburg slash Altona which is, uh, there are many famous G'daylam that are buried there, including Rabbi Yenis and Ibershitz and, and Rabbi Yaakov Emden, who had arguably the greatest um, battle between Rabbanim in, in recent times. Um, and it was a, a, a battle that really took the entire Europe, all the European uh, Jews and the Rabbanim got very embroiled in this terrible machlekes. And Interestingly enough, they ended up being buried within maybe 10, 15 feet of each other on the same row. 
for a reason that's uh, very interesting. You'll find it in the book as well. But basically, they after the second one was Nifter, as he was on his deathbed, he said to the other, he embraced the other one. He said the other one's name, and he made like a, a like a, a motion as if he's embracing him. And they knew then that they had made Shalom. And because of that, they felt, the Chaver Kaddisha felt comfortable burying them so close to each other. They both lived in the city of Altona slash Hamburg, but, you know, you would think you'd separate them, but they were buried extraordinarily close to one another. There is, um, and another one of the G'dayim that I want to really focus on, besides for Rav Hirsch, is Rav Yaakov Etlinger, the great Arach Laner, who's buried in the cemetery as well. I want to discuss him as well. Uh, before we get into the specifics of, of these two G'daylam in Germany, and then in addition we'll discuss in Hashem, the two American G'daylam that uh, are buried on American soil. I don't mean American that they were born in America, but they had such a profound impact on American uh, Judaism, Jewry, uh, is of course Reb Breuer, Reb Yosef Breuer and Reb Shimon Schwab, who are buried in Clifton, New Jersey. We're going to get to them later, but... Um, the last cemetery in Germany that I want to just focus on is the cemetery in Würzburg. And Würzburg is a, uh, a city that um, was uh, led by Rabbi Avram Bing, who I mentioned before. He was one of the Talmidim of Rabbi Nassim Adler. And he himself uh, was shaped and molded um, his successor, which is the Würzburger Rav, Rabbi Yitzchak Bamberger, who's uh, my great-great-grandfather, and he's Rabbi Dr. Hellman's as well. Um, and he was uh, one of the G'dayli Yisrael during the time of, during the 1800s, and uh, he's, he was uh, a great Paisik. Many, many hundreds, if not thousands, of, of tshuvas were sent by him to all over the world, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, even the United States of America, which was uh, had a very small uh, Jewish community at the time, but there were Rabbanim that would send him Shilas to answer. And uh, and his son, Reb Nassim Halevi Bamberger, uh, was his successor. He had many sons who became G'daylem and great Rabbanim throughout uh, the entire uh, Europe. Uh, one of his sons, in fact, is, was a Dayan in Frankfurt, and he's buried very close to Reb Shamshim Rafael Hirsch's gever, uh, but the Wurzburger Rav, his grave is not actually in the city of Wurzburg, but it's in the city outside of Wurzburg, a little like hamlet off of Wurzburg called Hirschburg. And legend has it, my father used to tell us that he did not want to be buried in the main cemetery in Wurzburg for the reason that the cemetery, for some reason, there was construction done on Shabbos. And he said, if the construction continues on Shabbos, he does not want, he will not be buried there. And that didn't stop them. They continued doing construction. I don't know how they went against the, the Maradasra's will, but for some reason, the construction continued in the city of Würzburg, in the cemetery there. And so after he was Nifter, he was buried in the city of Hirschburg, which was, and he was buried next to his Rebbe, of Avram Bing. And during the war, the Nazis or the Allies, depending on different sources, bombed the city of Würzburg, and the uh, and the cemetery in Würzburg, the Jewish cemetery, cemetery in Würzburg, was completely demolished. And therefore, it turns out that you know that you know Hakadosh Baruch Hu, with his Ashkacha Pratis, arranged that he should not be buried there. And today, a person could go and visit the city of Hirschberg 
and you get the key from the from the mayor's office, and you're able to go and and daven by these great kvarim uh, of Rav Avram Bring, the Wurzburgerov, the Wurzburgerov's Rebetzin, Rav Nossen Bamberger, his successor, and many other gedolim that are buried in this cemetery in Wurzburg. Now that we've given an overview of the major cemeteries in Wurzburg, and I'm not mentioning Michelstadt, which I really should, but we don't have time. The uh, the the Michelstadt, the Baal Shem of Michelstadt, uh, is a, also a, a legendary figure. Uh, he is uh, he is revered by everyone. There are Hasidim that go to his kever because it's known that there are many Yeshuas that take place if you daven by his kever. And, uh, and it became a very popular destination uh, to go to. So I believe, he's, I believe his yard site is on, on Saim Gedali, if I'm not mistaken. And many, many hundreds, if not thousands of Hasidim, are, they land in, in Germany, which is quite a sight. And they go to the, to the kever of Michelstadt, and then they go right back home. But they, they go specifically to the, to the Baal Shem of Michelstadt's kever, which is in the city of Michelstadt, which is near Worms, and it's opposite, uh, there's a pool. There's like a very large swimming pool on one side of the road, and on the other side of the road is this holy uh, piece of land where the Baal Shem of Michelstadt is buried. Let's discuss a little bit uh, about the Aruch Laner and his end of life and, and some major takeaways that we could take from him, and then we'll discuss Rav Shamsha Rafal Hirsch. Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger lived from 1798 to 1871. And he's, his svarim are absolute classics. And when I say classics, you know, sometimes a person is sort of pegged by their region where they come from uh, to being a certain type of, of writer or thinker. The Aruch Lener, even though he was, he was born in, in Germany and he was brought up in Germany, he was born in the city of Karlsruhe, and he was a Talmud of the son of the Shagas Arya, Reb Asher Wallerstein, who really gave him his, his mahalach, his approach to learning. Uh, but then he studied under Reb Avram Bing, together with Wurzburg Rav, who later would become his machutin. Their children married each other, Reb Avram Bing and the Wurzburg Rav. And then he became um, the Rosh Hashiva in Mannheim, and one of his students was Reb Shamshim Rafal Hirsch. So there is a, he was obviously a tremendous uh, figure, a linchpin figure in German uh, Jewish history because he was uh, a great Talmud of G'dayle Yisrael and he also had Talmidim himself, the likes of Reb Shamshim Rafal Hirsch. And he was a Talmud Chaver with Wurzburger Rav. But the fascinating thing that I always was so awed by the Aruch Laner was that his Svarim on, on Gemara, the Aruch Laner is a Sefer that's on Gemara, on many Mesechtas and Shas, and it's learned by the, in every yeshiva in the world, they will learn the Aruch Laner, meaning it's a staple of Lumdas. It's, it's a major Talmudic analysis of the highest order, from a, from a Rav that comes from Germany, and I'm not in any way putting down German Rabbanim, German Rabbanim or G'dayli Yisrael, but I wouldn't say that their forte in terms of the modern-day yeshivas you know, would be to have, to have the lumdas that would appeal to the yeshiva bachrim of today. But the Aruch Laner's Torah is, 
it, it, there's no yeshiva in the world that are learning the mesechta such as uh, Sukkah and Sanhedrin and, and Shabbos and, and other mesechtas that the Archlaner is constantly cited. It's impossible to learn certain Gemaras without the Archlaner. And in uh, Yevamis, he has a tremendous amount of Taira. And he's, he was a Gadol Hadar that across the board, he, uh, he was, he's beloved and uh, his Torah is studied today perhaps more than ever before. He also wrote a sefer called Bikura Yaakov, which is on the halachas of Sukkah. And in the back of the Bikura Yaakov, he has ha'aris, meaning there was an, ex- an exchange of, of questions and answers and comments and critiques by the great Rabbi Kiva Eger. Just to give you a little bit of a taste of how great and how in what high esteem the Archlaner was placed in, the greatest mind of that Kufa, Rabbi Kiva Eger, who is the gold standard of Lamdas and of Talmudic genius, he, he exchanged letters and critiques, and in the back of the Bikur Yaakov, you're going to find many of them, along with many comments that is, uh, that, that is, that, that is introduced by the words Yud Dalet Hey. And that stands for Yitzchak Dov Halevi, my great-grandfather, the Wurzburger Rav, also uh, commented profusely on the Bikura Yaakov's chidushim, and he argued with him often, and he and he brought rayas to him sometimes. But it's these are svarim that are studied the world over. And then, of course, he had the famous Chuvas Binyan which is uh, the uh, one of the most uh, well-used Chuvas svarim, the the legal halachic responsa. The there was a, a legend that um, that when this cemetery in in Altona uh, was under threat of being shut down totally and all the graves were going to be removed, why? Because there was a very anti-Semitic public official in that town of Altona, and he wanted to do in this cemetery. He wanted to get rid of all the Jews from the cemetery. Very often you find in Jewish history that the Gaim don't only want to destroy the living Jews, they also want to destroy the dead Jews. In fact, in the Megillus Esther already, the, the Vilna Gaim brings that Haman, one of his things that he wanted to do is he wanted to dig up all of the, the corpses of the Jews. They're not even happy with us being dead. And you see that today in many cemeteries throughout Europe. There are swastikas all over the Kvarim. Like, what, what, what are the dead Jews bothering the Gaim? But they, they can't even live with us when we're not alive. So this is something that happened in this Jewish cemetery in Altona. And, um, they, and so how did he go about his, his libel against the Jews to try to eradicate this cemetery, this, this historic cemetery, this very large, beautiful cemetery in, in Altona, in Hamburg? So he made up a story that, for, that and it's true, the, the, the land of the cemetery, the soil, was always wet for some reason. And because it was wet, he said that he had, pub, he had medical um, experts that said that the, that the fumes of the corpses underneath the ground, because it's so wet, they are, it's spreading dangerous vapors into the atmosphere of Altona, and it's, uh, it poses a very big medical threat to the entire uh, stability of the city, and therefore he wants to do away with the whole thing. And uh, the Archlaner was called into action. He had to try to save the day. And he found a, a sympathetic governor, government minister who told him that he would repeal the doctor's order 
if upon an official inspection of the site, no evidence was found to support it. So on the morning of the inspection, the Arachlaner went together with 10 Tamidei Chacham from the city. They went to the cemetery and they gathered around a grave of Rabbi Yechiel Pinchas, who was a very big Talmud Chacham, who promised before he died that if there was ever going to be any problems in the, cemetery, in the city of Altana, that they should come and daven by his kever, and he will do whatever he can in Shemayim to facilitate a Yeshua. So the Archlaner cried Tashem at that cemetery, and the tears rolled down his cheeks, and they touched the ground, they dropped onto the ground of the cemetery of Altona. As soon as one tear of the Arach Laner fell onto the soil, the entire earth dried up. So this constantly wet earth suddenly became parched dry. And just then, the inspectors came, the officials came, and they, uh, and they inspected the site, and they said to this anti-Semitic uh, you know, official, what are you talking about? We never saw such dry land in our life. You're just making up Baba Mises to try to do in the Jews, and the, and the case was closed, all in the of the Yarech Laner. And even though they closed that cemetery uh, at the end of that year, um, a year before the Yarech Laner died, they, that cemetery was officially closed, meaning there was no more room, and you'd, or, or officially you'd have to be buried in another cemetery uh, in Altona. But they let the Yarech Laner be the exception, and he was the last person buried in this cemetery in Altona. So you have tremendous tzaddikim. If you're Zaycha ever to go to Hamburg slash Altona, you'd be able to visit Rabbi Yaakov Emden and the Aruch Laner and, and Rabbi Yenison Eibeshitz, along with, um, with other great tzaddikim that we don't have time to discuss, but there are, there are many, many other tzaddikim, Riverfall, Hamburger, Kayin, who was the uh, who wrote the sefer Mar Pelashen about Shmiras Halashen about Lashon Hara, tremendous gedolim that are buried in the cemetery, and the cemetery was saved, according to legend, by the Aruch Laner. I'd like to talk a little bit about the great Rav Shamshim Rafal Hirsch, which I know is a name that's near and dear to the Kehillah. Of course, he was the founder and pillar and uh, and and Rosh Verishain of of the great Messira of Kaladas Yeshurun. So. He was born in 1808. He was Nifter in 1888. And of course, he was the, um, the, the founder of the Shita of Tarim Derech Eretz, which, uh, which basically uh, became very popular. And, and many ascribe the, the whole system of American Jewry, where we understand that we're able to have uh, you know, elementary school and high school secular studies, which is something that in, in Eastern Europe they would, never, uh, they would never countenance. But because of the influence of Rav Shamshir Rafael Hirsch on, on American Jewry, by extension through maybe Rav Shagrafael Mendelovitz and others, uh, because of that, he was sort of the gadol that that enabled much of the things that we take for granted in America. A lot of it is from Rav Shamshrafal Hirsch, and and a lot of the the ability that people have to go to college and to work and to uh, and to become professionals. All of this is directly um, traced to Rav Shamshrafal Hirsch's um, insistence on Tarim Derech Eretz as a way of life, and uh, and and it was quite uh, quite successful. Uh, throughout time. He was, of course, a great fighter against the reform movement, 
And then he left a very big position. He was the chief rabbi of Moravia, which was a very big shtela, a very big uh, position. And yet in 1851, he decided to leave that great position and move to Frankfurt, where he, uh, where he took a very small, relatively small Jewish community, and he made them into great Tamid Rachamim and great Balabatim, and he, and he, and he created a, an Orthodox Kehila named Kahaladas Yishorim. When Rav Hirsch was very sick in his final year, so his two young grandsons from Papa Hungary visited him in Frankfurt. And this would be the first and last time that six-year-old Yosef Breuer and his brother Rafael would meet their revered grandfather. But that meeting made an everlasting impression on young Rabbi Yosef Breuer. And when they were leaving him finally, Rabbi Breuer was a, uh, a son of Sophie Breuer, who was uh, the youngest daughter of Hirsch. So she went from, um, she, she came uh, from, she, she came to visit her father and, uh, and she brought these two young boys, Yosef and Rafael. And when they were leaving, so Rav Hirsch uh, presented them each with an engraved Kiddush cup. If you want to see what the actual Kiddush cup looks like in my book, Great Jewish Treasures, and I'm not trying to hawk my books, please don't misunderstand what I'm trying to do. I'm just giving you a maramakim, a source, if you're interested. If you want to see the actual Kiddush cup, you'll find it in Great Jewish Treasures. He had one engraved with the name Yosef and one with the name Rafal. And just as they thanked him and they were beginning to walk away from their revered grandfather, he called them back and he looked deeply into their eyes and he said to them, I'm not going to try to say the German, but he said, look at me intently so that you will never forget me. And this made such an indelible impression upon young Rabbi Yosef Breuer and he never forgot his grandfather. In fact, he went and he lived his entire life to continue the legacy of his grandfather. And when Reb Breuer, when Reb Hirsch was Nifter, so his son-in-law, Reb Shleim Breuer, uh, came from uh, Hungary and, uh, and took over, su- succeeded him as the Rav of Frankfurt. And then when, then when uh, Reb Shleim Breuer was Nifter, Reb Yosef Breuer became the Rosh Hashiva in Frankfurt, and he had tremendous impact on, on the Bachram there and on the entire Tzura of the entire city of Frankfurt. And of course, then he, after the war, he made his way to, um, or during the war, he, he made his way eventually to America, where he founded the, the, the famous Kaladas Yishur in, in Washington Heights, which we'll discuss uh, in a few minutes. We know that Rav Hirsch was meticulous with his moral ethical being. He believed that you have to be uh, a perfect Jew. You have to always have um, perfect scrupulousness regarding mitzvahs between ben Adam l'chaveray and not just between ben Adam l'amakam. You have to be a good Jew and you have to get along with other people and you have to be honest and have integrity. And he was the one that be, that started saying the saying that Rav Breuer would ultimately make famous that glat kosher, it's not so important as it's more important than being glat kosher is to be glat yosher, to be straight and honest in business and in all of your dealings. 
one of my favorite stories about Rav Hirsch is that he was so meticulous in financial matters that the Kehillah used to pay him quarterly. So on the first day of the quarter, he would get paid of the English calendar, and he, um, and then uh, you know, and then they would pay him again the next the next quarter. So he was always worried that he would die in the middle of the quarter, and then all of that money that they had paid him, you know, would not would not be prorated back to the Kehillah. He didn't once you die, you die. You don't deserve that extra money. So if let's say he would be nifter halfway into that into the quarter, so then he would owe the kilo that money. So he always made sure to tell his children that I want you to repay anything that's owed to the kilo, give it back to the kilo after I'm nifter, assuming that I'm nifter within the quarter. And Rebroyer was nifter on December 31st, uh, 1888, which was the last day of the quarter, so that exactly there would be no nothing owed to the kilo, and that's just like almost like a... Uh, a simim and ashamayim about how scrupulous he was with all of his all of his dealings. I would like to just mention about Rav, Rav Hirsch that he wrote a beautiful last will to his children, and I don't have time to uh, to get into the entire last will. If you want to see it, it's in Great Jewish Letters. Uh, but the, there, I have an actual picture there of the last will. I hope you could see this uh, in the camera. Uh, that's sort of like the way the, the last will looks. And in it, he writes to his children that all he wants of his children is one thing, and that's to preserve the brotherly love and harmony between you, that there should not be bad blood and absence of friendship among you. He says, for the sake of the memory of your dear mother's Zal and my memory, please stay close with one another. And then he says, That HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants and loves when brothers and sisters are able to sit in harmony together with one another, and that that is where Hashem commands His blessing, and that's the last thing that he wanted from his children, to make sure to always get along and to live harmoniously, which is an absolutely beautiful uh, thing to wish upon one's children prior to one's passing. Let's move now to the United States of America, and let's go to Clifton, New Jersey. I actually was just there uh, last week, uh, my grandmother's yard site, uh, was near that time, and I, I, I took my children, and we, uh, we went to visit um, my, both sets of my grandparents, my mother's parents, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Samuel Katz, and uh, my, my father's parents, uh, Misha and Chava Bamberger, and then all of my, uh, many of my, my father is buried there, uh, my illustrious uh, uncle and aunt, the Hellmans, Rabbi Dr. Johnny Hellman and Rachel Hellman, Nathan Hellman's uh, wonderful uh, tzaddikim and tzikanias, his mother and father, are buried right behind uh, the kever of her broyer. And, um, and then and I took my children to see all of these uh, amazing kvarim, and, uh, and it, it, you know, it's, uh, it's such a, a makam kaddish there. Everywhere you look, you see another great, uh, great person, and I told them, um, you know, I pointed out the grave of uh, Eli Wexler, Zechariah Levrach Hashem Yimkam Dam of 
who was a very close friend of my father, who was tragically uh, killed, as we, as many of you might know, in, in Washington Heights many, many years ago. He was a, a wonderful, wonderful person. And, uh, and Rabbi Bauman, who, who died last summer saving a young child in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, is buried uh, in close proximity. But the two graves, of course, that are uh, most notable in, the, uh, in this, in this uh, particular part of the cemetery of Kaladas Yeshurun, is um is Reb Breuer and and Rav Shimon Schwab, and uh, of course Rav Zechariah Geli is buried there as well, and Dr. Muller and many other great pillars of the community, which we will not have time to discuss tonight. Maybe if you want, we will do another uh, Zoom meeting at your at your will if you would like that. I'd be happy to do that. But um, let's talk about Rav Breuer a little bit. So, like we said before, Rav Breuer came in 1939. Um, to America after he was the Rosh Shiva in Frankfurt, as we discussed before. And he established a kehillah of German refugees, uh, and he followed the sacred customs of, his spirit, of its spiritual ancestor, which is Kaladas Yishurin of Frankfurt. And they also established a yeshiva called Yeshiva Srebisham Shurafal Hirsch after his illustrious grandfather. In his will... Reb Breuer insisted that there be no hespedim for him. He was very, very simple. All he wanted to do all day was learn, and he wanted to lead his kehillah, and he wanted to lead them with yashras, and he had no interest in any gaiva, no, no, he never boasted. He was very, very humble, very simple, although he was a tremendous, tremendous Talmud Chacham. Uh, we have svarim of his on learning, the Divrei Yosef, and other of his uh, svarim, his commentaries on Nevi'im. On, on but his, his tombstone is also extremely simple. Um, all it says is the Kehillas that he served in, that he was, he was a Talmud Neman of his father, the Gain, who was Rav Schlemmer and of his grandfather, Rav Shamshrin Again, he wasn't an actual Talmud of his. Like we said, he only met him once when he was six years old, but he was a spiritual Talmud of his. He spent his whole life studying the works of Hirsch and spreading the Torah and the philosophy and the ideology and the Ashkafa of, of Rav Hirsch. So in that sense, he considered himself a Talmud of Rav Shamshrin Hirsch. And then it says, He was, uh, he calls himself just a simple Malamed, and he was a Manal in the Yeshiva uh, Harama, the, the very elevated yeshiva and a rav in the Beis HaKnesses in, in, uh, in, uh, in Frankfurt. And for a short time, he served as the rav in Fiuma. And, uh, and that's basically what it says in his grave. A very, it doesn't say anything about him. It's all about, his, about who his father was, his grandfather, and about the positions that he held, but very little, if anything, really about him. Um, I want to read to you something that Rav Volbe Rav Shlomo Walby, who was, uh, he was from Germany, but he became the leader of the Musser movement currently, you know, I mean, until he was Nifter, but he was, uh, he, he authored the Ali Shur, and, uh, but he was a Talmud of, of Rav Shlomo Breuer in Frankfurt, and he was close with Rav Yosef Breuer, and he writes a very fascinating thing about the funeral of Rav Breuer. When Rav Breuer was Nifter, and he had Arichas Yamim. He was, uh, he was born in 1882, and he died in 1980. So he was 98, 97, 98 years old when he was Nifter. And at his funeral, 
there were people, not just from the Yekesha Kehila, the, the Ashkenaz Kehila of Breuers that were present, but you would find uh, masses of people from all sects of Klal Yisrael. You had Hasidim, you had Misnagdim, you had Europeans, Americans, Rashi Yeshiva, who may have disagreed with this philosophy, but they came for hours just to give Kavad Acharon the last respects to Rebroyer. And the question is, why would they come? Why did these Hasidim and Rosh Hashivas and Litvish, why did they all come to this funeral? And Rosh Shlomo Walby wrote the following about this in answer to this question. He says like, as follows, The definition of a Gadol B'Yisrael is one who is great in Torah and great in piety, one whose personal views and conduct are based exclusively on those twin pillars. Such a person is acknowledged as a peer by the other great men of his era. Rabbi Shamshon Rafal Hirsch was revered by the Hasidic leaders of Galicia and by the rabbis of Lithuania. That his views did not accord with theirs was immaterial. His philosophy grew out of his God-fearing understanding of Torah, and therefore was legitimate for him. So it was with Rabbi Shlemmer Breuer, and so it was with Rabbi Yosef Breuer. Their greatness transcended community. They belonged to Klal Yisrael, so they were honored by Klal Yisrael, all of it. Those were the beautiful words penned by Rabbi Shlemmer Walby, explaining the mass outpouring of, of grief and honor by all sides, by all camps of Klal Yisrael when Rebroyer was Nifter. Rav Shimon Schwab was uh, somebody who, uh, you know, we still feel the loss so greatly of Rav Schwab. And his, as he, as his, as the more years passed since he was Nifter, his reputation and his Torah are spreading greater and greater. The Svarim that he wrote, whether it's the Mayan Beis HaShoeva, Rav Schwab on prayer, and the many, many other Svarim, the selected speeches, selected writings, selected essays, and many of his Svarim on, on other, on Iyav and on uh, other Svarim in, in Nach and on Tefillah, they became classics that, you know, way beyond anyone's wildest imagination. It's hard to find a Jewish home today that doesn't have a well-used copy of Mayan Beis HaShoeva. I think every Bar Mitzvah boy probably gets multiple copies of it. And uh, for good reason. The Torah in the Sefer is absolutely beautiful. Um, you know, we, we mentioned before uh, about Rabbi Edwin Katzenstein. So I heard, I, I'm not sure if it's true, but I, I think it is that he was Nifter on Friday night and he had Rav Schwab Sefer at the Shabbos table, and he looked through a piece on the parsha from Rav Schwab, he said it over, he says, that's a, a Shana piece, that's a nice, a beautiful daher, a beautiful idea from Rav Schwab, and then he closed his eyes and he was nifter. So that was uh, the greatness of Rav Schwab, um, is, uh, is, is being really understood by our generation. His Torah is, is revert. It's hard to go to a, a, a drasha of any sort that Schwab's name is not mentioned. He was such a great Gadol. He was born in Germany. He was trained in, in, in the yeshiva in Frankfurt as a young child. And then he went on to the yeshivas of, uh, of Eastern Europe, uh, the Mir Yeshiva, where he became a Talmud of Rabbi Rucham and, uh, and of the other great Rosh Yeshivas there. 
And then he eventually made his way uh, to America, where he became the Rav in Baltimore and Congregation Sheriff Israel. Uh, and then he was elected uh, to join Rabbi Yosef Breuer in the rabbinate of Kaladas Yishurin in New York City. I just wanted to mention something that Rav Schwab once said in a eulogy for Dr. Muller, uh, Rabbi Dr. Muller, who um, I'm sure you all know who it is, but in case uh, the younger generation might not, he was one of, he was the Rosh HaKal, he was a doctor, and he was, uh, he embodied Tarim Derech Eretz, and he was held in the highest esteem and awe by everybody that knew him. So when he was Nifter, Rav Schwab was masped him. And Rav Schwab quoted a Pasuk in Shmuel Bez, in Perak in, in Gimel, Pasuk um, Lamed Ches, where David HaMelech says to his men about the death of Avner, do you not realize that a commander and a great man has fallen in Israel this day. But the word, it says, hello, Tedu. Tedu is a, is a future verse. The verse is future. It should have said, you know, you know today. Why does it say you will know that a great general, a great, um, a great man and a commander has fallen today? It shouldn't have said the Lashon of Tedu, you will know in the future. And Rav Schwab says that, that the language is deliberate, because when a great man passes away, even if that day the magnitude of his loss is not yet fully realized, but as time goes on, his loss will be more and more acutely felt each passing day. So it's halotedu, you will know. If you don't know today, as time passes, you will realize acutely how great a loss it was. And I think that that really sums up Rav Schwab himself. At the time that he was Nifter, of course, it was a, a tremendous loss that we can't fathom. But the more time passes, the more we really uh, feel the loss so much greater because he was such a, a leader and an eloquent spokesperson for Klal Yisrael. And he was, he, by every Aguda convention, by every Siyam Ashas, his was the drusha that everybody waited to hear because he always had such pure dastara and the way he expressed it in such a beautiful form was so memorable and his speeches are, are legend. Before Schwab was nifter, he called over a, a very wealthy uh, person in the community and he summoned him to his apartment. He says, listen, he says, I don't have that much longer to live. And the yeshiva, unfortunately, uh, is very deep in debt, which is not uncommon to yeshiva, for yeshivas in general. But there, a lot of the rabbeim and the teachers have not been paid for many months. And they call me the ish emes. They call me the man of truth. But how can I be the man of truth if my yeshiva, if my kehillah's yeshiva, is, is owing so much to the rabbeim, we can't pay our bills, we can't pay our vendors. He says, we need about a million dollars, and I don't have it. But you do have it. And what I'd like for you to do is to think about giving that money to the yeshiva in order to pay off our bills. And I'll be eternally grateful to you because I can't go up to the Elama Emes and, and face my creator uh, with, such a, with such a debt on my shoulders. I don't have the money, you do, and you have many, many more millions of dollars where that came from. Please consider what I'm asking. And what happened was that uh, he said, please take me out of Gehenna. I'm begging you. 
So this man, this wealthy man was very shaken, but he agreed eventually to cover the entire deficit in, in, in weekly installments to be completed before the yeshiva's annual dinner. The last payment was made on the Friday before the dinner, and the yeshiva's dinner was on Sunday night, and the following evening on Purim Katan in the year 1995, Rav Schwab passed away. That just goes to show the achrayas, the sense of responsibility that Rav Schwab had, and there are many, many stories about Rav Schwab's uh, impeccable honesty, how he was an ish emes in every single regard, and he didn't cut corners, and he was very, very upset when Achil Hashem was perpetrated by people that considered themselves religious, but really were acting in ways that were opposite. If you go to his kever, and like I said, I just was there last week, and I pointed this out to the people that were with me, also a very simple kever, it just says his name, he was a Rav in Kaladas Yeshurun and before in Darmstadt and, and in, in uh, Echenhausen and in Baltimore. The day that he was Nifter, V'shem Imai Chana. And then underneath, and I'm going to sh- try to show it to you, I'm going to try to zoom, if you can notice, on the bottom of the, of the grave, if you could see that, there's like a little box. Molly, can you see that? Is it clear? Okay, so... There's a little... Yes, I could see it. It was very clear. Okay, thank you. So on the bottom, there's a very strange and mysterious pasuk that Rav Schwab himself chose to have written on his grave. It's a pasuk in Mishle, Parak Chavches, 28. And the pasuk says, Mechase Peshav lo yatzliach. If you try to cover up your sins, you will not succeed. But if you confess and you abandon your sins, Yerucham, you will find mercy. Very strange Pasuk. Why would of all the Pesukim that Rav Schwab would want on his grave, what does this Pasuk have to do with his legacy? What does it have to do that somebody that's Mechaseb Shav, somebody tries to cover up his sins, he's not going to succeed? Why was this on his grave? Not clear. So in uh, one of his sons, one of Rav Schwab's Chashav sons, Rav Meir Schwab, who is, uh, who's in, lives in uh, Denver. He has a base Yaakov in Denver. He explains as follows, and I think his son Moshe also, or Moshe, he also uh, told me a similar idea. I guess they were both a mechave, and they both had the same idea, and which means it's true, because they knew their father the best. They said that their father's approach to life was always that when you do something wrong, and we all do things wrong, right? We all make mistakes, We'd sometimes cut corners. We, uh, you know, we, we do things wrong. Every day we do things wrong, right? But there are two approaches when you do something wrong. Sometimes when you do something wrong, you sweep it under the carpet and you go into denial mode and you pretend it didn't happen and you, uh, and you, you just like look the other way. Rav Schwab felt that that was the absolute wrong thing to do. When you do something wrong, what you have to do is face the music. Face the music, own up to the problem, realize that you'd made a mistake, confess, confess to Hashem if you made a mistake to him, if you made a mistake to somebody else, if you, you know, you, you, you owe somebody money or you, you, you sort of feel like you, you wronged somebody, don't try to like get out of it. The best thing that a person could do is just 
do tshuva and go on being a good person. Don't prolong the agony. Don't cover up for your sins, but face the music. That was his mantra in life. That was his mantra. In fact, he has a beautiful vart on the Haggadah. If you see the Haggadah, it goes through all of the, uh, you know, the Dayenus and all the different steps that we went through, you know, from, uh, from Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim to Matan Torah to, uh, to the Midbar to Eretz Yisrael. And what was the last thing, the final ultimate step of all of these great events in Jewish history? Ubana lanu es beis habachira. He built for us a beis hamikdash. Why? Lechaper al kol In order to atone for our sins, because ultimately, he says, you want to go up before the Almighty after 120 years, pure of sin, free of sin, no no sin, sin free, and so. That's why, according to his sons, he put on his kever this strange pasuk, because this is exactly what he lived his life believing. If you try to cover over your sins and put a fig leaf on top of your sins and pretend it's not there, and that's, you're not going to ever succeed. That's not the right way to do it. But if you confess your sins and you own up to them and you take ownership of them, and you abandon them, meaning you, you deal with it, you tackle them, and you, you're, you're, you ask mechila from Hashem and from others, and you face the music even though it's very uncomfortable, but it's worth it, because Yerucham, with that, you will find Hashem's mercy. And with that, you'll be able to go to the Kisayakavid, free of sin, of all of the major events of Jewish history, of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, Matan Torah, all the great events. But the greatest of all, and the purpose of them all, was to land us in the Beis HaBechira. Why? So that we could bring Karbanas, and we could get a Kapara for our sins. Thank you very much for listening. And Yitzhah Hashem, we should all be zeichet to find pride, take pride in, in our tremendous Messiah that we have, the great Yerusha that... Our grandparents, our parents, our great-great-grandparents gave to us darach dar, and they were Moser Nefesh for this great Messiah. We should always take pride in that, never try to, you know, I want to just tell a quick story about, uh, if I may, I know it's very, very late, um, but there's a, a wonderful story that uh, appears in the Hakdama, in the introduction to Rabbi Benjamin Hamburger's Shrashim um, and Hage Ashkenaz, and I, I always tell this over to, uh, to boys that have a Yekisha background, and sometimes it's a little bit uncomfortable in yeshivas, they don't want to wear a talis, you know, because none of the other boys are wearing a talis, and they don't want to daven with their special uh, havara, and their special nusach, and their, uh, with their, their minhagim, and they're, you know, they want to sort of mix in with the, with the hamaynam, which is understandable. A boy who is a Talmud, a yeshiva bacher in Panovich, who is a Talmud of Rav Shach, and he went to Rav Shach and he said um, to the Rosh Shiva, he said, you know, my minig is to wait three hours between, uh, between Fleshigs and Milchigs. He says, but everybody in the yeshiva is waiting six hours and I feel that I want, I'm ready to be machmir. I want to be machmir. So you would think, okay, Rav Shach, you know, a very machmir, you know, good, good, good idea. Rav Shach said to him, chas v'shalom. He says, you have a beautiful Messiah. You have such a precious Messiah, priceless Messiah from Ashkenaz. 
He says, that's your Misera. It's not that, it's not a Kula, that's your Misera. He says, Chas Vashon, that you should keep six hours. You have to keep three hours because that is your precious Misera. And so we should take a lot of pride in our Misera. Our Misera stretches back, you know, a thousand years and more. And through the Kivrit Tzadikim that we mentioned, which are just a few, we see the great Messiah from the Maril and from Rabbeinu Gershom Aragayla and all the way down through all the great Kadmainim, Rishayinim, Achrayinim of, of Ashkenaz. We should take a lot of pride in them and befrat the Kaladas Yeshurun, who is really the, the, the bastion of Ashkenaz Jewry today in the world. Uh, hold on to every, everything that we have because, you know, it's so chashav, it's so important to maintain the beautiful menhagim and the tefillas and the, the derech halimut and the tarim derech eretz and all these things are so precious and you are the last bastion perhaps in the world of, of real, true Frankfurt uh, Yiddishkeit and the Mitzvah Hashem we should all be zeichet to be mekabel p'nei Mashiach tzikeinu HaKadosh Baruch should should allow us to be Zeicha in these terrible uh, days that we're going through now to see Yeshua. Uh, I'd like to thank all of you for attending this year, and I hope that you are inspired and you will uh, take some lessons from it.